Who's sad because it's raining that it's not sunny? And who's sad because it's raining that it's not snowing? Who's on the I wish it was sunny crowd? We go, Susan. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. Who's on the I wish it was snowing crowd? Psychopaths. I'm always going to be on Team Sunny. But I understand. I understand. All right. Let's settle down a little. All right. You guys, this morning we're going to be looking at Philemon, which is Paul's shortest letter. Bob's got him there. Mark, Bob's going to get you. Um, Philemon is, is, Mar- is Paul's shortest letter. Not the, it's the last letter in order in your New Testament, but it's not his, the last letter he wrote. That's 2 Timothy. We're going to get there in a little bit. Um, what do you guys know? Philemon's strange. It's a little bit off the path. So let's go ahead and give me your opening bids on Philemon. What do you guys know about this thing? If anything, it's like I said, it's a not super well-trod ground. Philemon, Philemon, what do you know? Got anything, Shima? Uh, it is, it's about a slave. What's the slave's name? Uh, no, Phi- yep, Philemon's the slave owner. Onesimus or Onesimus, nobody knows how to say it, but yeah, Onesimus, is, it's about a guy named Onesimus who is a slave, but he's a runaway slave We'll kind of, we'll figure that out as we go. Anything else we know other than it's about, it's to a slave owner, about a runaway slave? Robin, what you got? Yes, absolutely. So Robin is saying that in Philemon, Paul is writing to Philemon to ask him to go easy on Onesimus. That's exactly right. And we'll see that, we'll see how he does that in a minute when we read it out. Yeah, Dan? It was used uh, in the 19th century to justify slavery. Okay, this is going to be, and we're going to have to talk about this. We're going to need to, Dan, what Dan said is it was used to justify slavery, and we're going to have to talk about what is the New Testament's view of slavery. It's a little bit of a complicated story. We're going to, we'll talk about that as we go through this today. Anything else you want to throw out there? Okay, all right. So, Philemon, as I said, it's a short book. It's an unusual book. One of the things that's strange about it is that it's the only letter that Paul wrote to an individual about a personal matter, right? So you can think about Paul's letters like this. He's got one letter that is written to a group of churches. That's Galatia. The letter to Galatia, Galatia is not a city, it's a region. And that letter is written to the churches, plural, in Galatia. He's got a whole bunch of church, a bunch of letters written to individual cities. To letter to the church in Rome, letter to the church in Ephesus, letter to the church in Philippi, right? Those are written to churches. Then he's got a couple letters written to individuals who are leading churches. That's Timothy and Titus. And then he's got Philemon. And Philemon is written to a private citizen, an individual, not the pastor of a church, not the church, not the region of churches, just to some dude, although he does specifically invite his church to listen in on the letter. He kind of includes them, but it's chiefly written to this guy Philemon, which makes it really funny because it's not, it's not a theological work. It's not written to a church, a gathering of believers. It's written to this one individual about a very particular situation, and it's not even written, though it's written to a particular man, to Philemon. It is about somebody else. It's about Onesimus. There's one, it's stunning. There's a book in the New Testament that is written for the benefit of a single human being, that he might be treated with grace and kindness, despite the fact that he's in enormous legal jeopardy. And his book, this very personal thing, 
was included in the canon. It's kind of a crazy circumstance. What we're going to do, because it's so short, we have time to read the whole thing. I'm going to read it to you. And you've got it here. When we do these little short books, I think I only did this for Jude and Philemon because they're so short. Instead of just commenting on it, I just gave you the text itself. And then we'll, we'll kind of create an annotated version. And I'd encourage you, as we're doing with all these things, if there's any of these insights that kind of grip you, you could just translate or transfer them into your actual Bible. Here's the things I want. Well, I'll just read it to you, and then we'll just make, make a bunch of notes here. It says, Paul, a prisoner, which is interesting, of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. All right, so there's more people included in it, but it's chiefly to Philemon. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that? That's how Paul starts all his letters. He says, I will always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. And now we're going to get into it. Verse 8, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep to I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will not be spon- will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brothers, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord, Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay. Now, there's a couple things we can observe here, but first, let's just kind of reverse engineer it. So what's, what seems like, what's going on here? What, what happened in the last year or two prior to the writing of this letter? What is it? Yeah, Fetz? Onesimus met the Lord. Yes, Onesimus met the Lord. What happened prior to Onesimus meeting the Lord? He ran away. He ran away. And what happened prior to that... What's that? We don't know. He may or may not have been. The name useless 
well, it's interesting. We'll talk about his uselessness. But how about even, there's a more fundamental thing that has to happen to set this whole thing up. What did Philemon do prior to this whole thing ever happening? He, he purchased a human being is what he did, okay? So what we have, so the, so the setup here is we have Philemon, who is a Christian, a believer, who owns at least one and maybe several human beings. He's a, I mean, you, you cannot duck this. Onesimus owns slaves. One of them, I'm sorry, Philemon owns slaves. One of them is this guy, Onesimus. At some point, Onesimus grows weary of it, runs away, flees, escapes from slavery, and after he escapes... He comes to faith. He meets Paul, and Paul leads him to Christ. And what you've got to understand, so Paul meets this guy, this runaway slave somewhere in the Roman Empire. He leads him to faith in Christ. And in the process, in the course of this relationship with Paul and Onesimus, Onesimus tells his story of where he used to be, who he worked for, uh, what land he was a slave in. And he's like, yeah, my master's name was Philemon. And Paul's like, Philemon in Colossae, Philemon? Yeah, 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 that's where I was. Fascinating. I know that guy. And by the way, and hear this, you're not allowed to run away. You have to go back. Imagine Onesimus. Okay, think about this. When we read this letter, there's this dynamic tension. Usually when you read the letter of Philemon, I highlighted in dark blue everything that feels heavy-handed, Right? So Paul uses language like this. Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, I am standing him who is my very heart, not to lay it on thick. Verse 14, I don't want you to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. He says, not to mention that you owe me your very self. He says, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Okay, does this not feel heavy-handed to you? Bordering on manipulative, <laughs> right? Okay, so usually when we read this, we'll have this sense of like, wow, Paul, you're really laying it on thick. But what balances that? What's the other side of that seesaw? Is it obvious? Paul is sending Onesimus back to his former master, right? If this letter was for you, if this was your name on here, if it's like, I'm sending Judy back to you, would you not want this letter to be a little bit heavy-handed? Would you, like, Paul is sending a runaway slave. He's saying, you, you can't do that. You're not allowed to be a runaway slave. Your, your life is forfeit. One, you, it was wrong for you to run away. Number two, like you're in legal jeopardy and you're, the rest of your life you're a fugitive. You need to go back and you need to ask him to release you. But you need to go back. I can imagine Onesimus being like, yeah, I'm not going back. That's why I left. And then Paul says, no, 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 I'm gonna write you a letter. To which Onesimus must have thought, this better be some letter, Okay. If you're asking me to go back here and put my life in his hands, you better write a really good letter. And so he does. That's what we're doing. So if, if, you, if you're struck by the heavy-handedness of it, don't miss the, predic- the precariousness of Onesimus' situation, right? And so Paul sends him back with this letter. You with me? Okay. Now, when, you, when he writes this letter, notice a few things here that are going to, I think, are just striking. Paul refers several times. He is a prisoner, He's a prisoner, he is in chains, he is in chains. Paul is a man himself, he's literally in jail, he's literally enslaved in a prison while he's advocating for the freedom of somebody else. 
which I just think is so significant, right? Now, Paul may get out of jail. He does get out of this, but he's, he's in and out of prison all the time. But he's doing this uh, as a slave himself, advocating for the freedom of another, which I think has gospel implications. He's also doing this. Why do you think he writes the letter to the church, not just to Philemon, but he includes other people? What do you think is going on with that, in particular the church? Yeah, Robin? Okay, this is great. So there's a couple of things here. This is the New Testament's, I'll look at this more broadly. This is the New Testament's strongest entree into overturning an institution that nobody can overturn. This is foundational to the very being of Rome, right? Meaning the Roman Empire, the whole thing. And so this is not, this is a very private matter. This is a very personal matter, but he wants to be seen right? Because this work, this domino that Paul is pushing over right here, it needs to knock over more dominoes. It needs to spread. It needs to absolutely overthrow the fundamental institution that makes Rome possible. It's a big deal. So it needs to be observed. It needs to be seen. That's right. There's another reason too. Kelly? Um, I think it's Colossi actually. Yes, this is absolutely right. And when we get to the back page, we're going to talk through what are the theological... There's not a lot of um, expressed theology in this, but the latent theology in this is exactly what you said. And it's really important. We're, we're going to pull on that thread in a little bit. So we'll get there. Yeah, more. Yes. That's right. Now, hold on to that. We're going to chase that down in a minute. But first, I want, I want to just finish this question. Why does he invite the church? One is we, there are implications that are going to be broad for everybody. It's for one man. Onesimus needs to be set free. Philemon is the guy that can do it, right? We're going to deal with the theological implications of how this undercuts the entire system of slavery, but not yet. Why else does he want the church to see it? Jesse? accountability because he basically and I mean this in the gentlest way it would be really embarrassing if Philemon doesn't respond to this right and this is just one more way that he's putting pressure on him I'm telling you you read this letter and you're like wow what are you doing literally Onesimus's life hangs in the balance and so he's going to write to Philemon he's going to lay it on pretty thick and he's going to make sure that others are watching so that when Onesimus reads this letter, he's like, this is your soul shield. This is your only protection, this piece of paper. Now go. It's actually a pretty good piece of paper. It's a pretty good protection. And it needs to be because this guy is being asked to do something incredibly difficult. Do you remember when you were like six years old and you did something stupid and your mom and dad made you walk next door and apologize to the neighbor? You know that phenomena on how much you hated that? This is that... At like times a hundred. Like you got to go home and say, I'm so sorry I ran away from when you bought me. Like, like that's what's going. It's a big, big deal. And so Paul is going to do everything he can to make it likely for him to succeed. Now, by the way, the reason we think it's the church and well, it's funny. We're not sure if it is the church in Colossae. He doesn't address the church in Colossae, but we think it's there. If you look at these names, take a look at this. In this letter, 
Um, he is going to talk to talk about Onesimus. Onesimus shows up in Colossians 4. He's going to talk about Aristarchus, who shows up in Colossians 4. He's going to talk about Archippus, who shows up in Colossians 4. It's the same cast of characters in Colossians, and then there is a church that meets in their home. So we don't know from Philemon verse 2 if the church is the church in Colossae or if it would be like the church in Salem, like if it's like the next neighboring church, right? It could be that like we're the church in Roanoke, they're the church in Salem, Colossians, and then Philemon's is the next door, maybe. We're not sure. But it's, pro- it's the same cast of characters, like several names are the same. So we assume that's where he's coming from, right? So in this whole thing, what he's going to do is he's going to tell them, you have to let him back. Oh, you don't have to. I mean, you're totally free to do whatever you want, but you absolutely have to let him back. And that's, that's the tone of the letter. And the, what is the primary, if there's any theological point, what is it? What is the case that he is making that you need to free Onesimus? And this, by the way, is the most subversive part of this letter. He is one of the saints, just like all these other guys. Keep going. Yes. Okay. Well, Gary said he's one of the saints just like you. Take a look. Take a look at the pink thing in verse 16. I'll start in verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me and even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. You guys, this is, this is the subversive claim. When we say that, some, that these two are brothers, what are we invoking there? What is brotherhood meant to convey? Equality. Equality, right? That is radical. He is not equal. He is your slave. He is your property. You can do with him as you wish. And Paul says, but actually none of that's true. He is your equal. And the reason we know that he's your equal is that he's in Christ, you're in Christ, and in Christ we're all equal. Do you see how radical this is? Do you see how subversive this is? This is the, this is the place where Paul is going to shove, this is the place where he inserts the, the uh, crowbar to begin to completely dismantle the entire system. He's not talking about the evils of slavery. He's not going after, like, how dare you? How presu- it's not a rebuke. It is this very gentle, mild, oh, P.S., you recognize, of course, that you and Onesimus are on equal playing field. You recognize that you're brothers in Christ. And if you embrace that, that is, it's the Trojan horse, right? You know the idea of the Trojan horse. You let the Trojan horse in because, hey, who doesn't want a giant wooden horse? (laughs) But once you've let it in and the army spills out of it, it's like, that's what he's, he's doing. He's like, this simple concept, you cannot argue with, in Christ, you two are the same. And once, once we grant that, the implications spill out, and there's nothing you can do about it, because we've already, you've already granted the single idea that you didn't understand had all these implications, but it does, and now it's game over. You have to set him free, because in Christ, we're all equal. Do you see what he's doing? You guys, this is the, that right there, that right there, verse, what is it, verse 16? He's very dear to me, but dear to you as a man and a brother in the Lord, as a dear brother. This is the thing that over the century, it's going to take time. Slavery is deeply entrenched in the Roman culture and really throughout the world. That is the single idea that Paul, that's the seed that he plants. And it's a little bit like, you know, which is stronger, you guys? This, a seed or a sheet of cement? A seed or a sidewalk? 
Which is stronger? The seed. Right? If we were playing rock, paper, scissor, seed beats sidewalk. It just takes it a while. Right? And that's what he's doing. He's planting this idea, and then he's just going to let us stand. He's going to stand back, and without a huge riot, this is going to completely undermine the whole system. Okay? So that's really what he's doing. And then as he does it, and this is what Kelly was mentioning, he's going to frame the thing in gospel terms. Again, the theology. Okay, hang on a second. I'll, and then I'll, let me finish the sentence, and I'll come to you, Tommy. He's going to frame this whole thing in gospel language, but never with expressing. He's not, it's not a teaching time. It's all application. We'll see the gospel thing in just a second, but first, Tommy. Well, I was going to speak to that, that ultimately, um, you know, for the church as a whole, bearing witness to this, as opposed to bearing witness between slaveholder and slave, um, rather that here's an invitation saying that, you know, we are all of us surrounded by those who are slaves to sin. And even though we may not be a slave owner in that situation, we bear the means of, of them attaining the freedom of Christ. We absolutely do. It's not, a, it's not an optional thing to engage into that. Yes, absolutely. And when we, when we flip over to the back page, we're gonna, I'm going to try to give you a quick survey of the New Testament teaching on slavery, and that will kind of fit that all into there, Tommy. Okay, so stay here, staying here on the front page for another minute, take a look at what he does here. Look at, the, look at the kind of substitutionary nature of this. In verse 18, Paul says, If he, that's if Onesimus, if Onesimus has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, and I will pay it back. What is the theo- what theological concept is that? <coughs> and you might think in a terms of atonement theory. What is that? That is substitutionary atonement, right? You got it, Judy? Is that what you're going to say? Basically, it's a do unto others as you have them. You know, he was rescued basically by Paul. And Paul is saying, you owe me just as I rescued you. I rescued him. Yes, okay, and now we're going to see, there's actually going to be, the, the, we'll, we'll come back to that in a second, because on the flip side, this first thing is, if he owes you anything, I will pay his bill. You guys, that is the foundation of your life, is that you owed something, and somebody else paid your bill, right? This, this is penal substitutionary atonement. Our sin earned us a penalty, Jesus pays that penalty, and we're off the hook. That, that's, that's exactly what Paul is doing, is he is embodying, he's, he's imitating the gospel of Christ, if he owes you something, I will pay it. Jesus, you owed something, Jesus paid it. That's what he's doing. And then the flip of it, look at the flip of it. It's right here in verse 17. He says, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And that gets more into what Judy is talking about, where because we understand that Jesus has done everything for me, he paid my debt, then I'm gonna be looking for any opportunity I have not to pay him back, because I can't, and we're not trying to get even. We'll never be even. But I want to live responsively to his generosity to me. And Jesus says, okay, here's how you show kindness to me. You be nice to somebody else, and I will treat that as if you were being nice to me. This is the central claim of Matthew 25, right? That if you are, when, you know, that's the whole thing of, you know, you, when I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was poor, you clothed me. Whatever, naked, you clothed me. And they're like, when did we do that? And Jesus says, Jesus' famous line is, that's right. You do it to the least of these, you do it to me, right? And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He says, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. So Paul is in this, he's putting himself in the role of Christ. He's not Jesus, but he's saying, you know what? Just like Jesus paid somebody else's penalty, 
I will pay somebody else's penalty, and we're good. And just like Jesus took kindness done to others as a kindness to himself, I will treat your kindness to Onesimus as a kindness to me, right? So what Paul is doing, he's not teaching the gospel. Philemon already knows this. Philemon's already a disciple of Paul. He knows this, but he's manifesting it. Paul sees, he meets, just think about this. He sees this guy, Onesimus. He meets him. Onesimus is a slave. That's a bummer. He's a runaway slave. That's dangerous. He's a runaway slave of one of Paul's disciples. And Paul's like, oh, shoot. I got to send you back. And Onesimus doesn't want to go back. He's like, no, 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 it's okay. I'm going to write a letter. And I'm going to frame this whole thing in the irrefutable logic of the gospel. I'm going to paint the picture. I'm going to tell the story in such a way that Philemon is going to have to say, yeah, I get it. I get it. I will... It's a loss, it's a financial loss for me, but I'll charge that to Paul, to whom I owe my very life. I'm gonna treat, treat you the way I would have treated Paul because I love Paul, and that's the way Jesus does it. And he just, and the case is made. And so Onesimus gets to go back. He's now elevated back to the status that he should have as a, one who's made in the image of God and redeemed by Christ as an equal to Philemon. And the gospel works itself out. And that's how this works. Now, you could have said, skip all that, I'll hide you here in whatever city I happen to be in. But then you'd miss all the opportunity. He's inviting Onesimus to go into this incredibly risky, lived-out drama where the gospel actually matters to people. And he does it. And presumably, it takes. It works. Do you see what he's doing? See how brilliant that is? Like, I don't know that I would have been smart enough to put this thing in the canon right, to include this for the rest of the church to think about for 2,000 years. But that's why it's here, so that we can be thoughtful. Does the gospel matter? Are we to think, how, how, does it, how does it play out in this broken world where slavery is a thing, how are we to live in that? And that's exactly what he's modeling for us in, what is it, 25 verses. Incre- with incredible economy, it gives us this super practical lesson. Make sense? Okay, Catherine. This is what we need today. Sometimes it's, there's so much negativity toward, from the world, just the word gospel. And it needs this kind of example to work it out. It, there's so many aspects, like, like when a man owned a lumber field and, and people, their robbers were stealing his lumber. So he came out to load it up and he said, wait a minute, you're not getting the best. I, here's my best. So they went over and loaded the truck with the best, and then after a while, you can imagine them going, who are you? And, and the gospel, that's the gospel. And so they came to Christ. That's like a modern-day version of Les Mis right there, of like what, right? And it, it is, it's, it's what Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the left cheek also, right? If someone forces you to do this, go beyond that. That's radical, lavish, non-retaliatory love being played out in a way that just completely fries everybody's categories. That's right. And then we're invited. That's why Paul's like, why not, why not be ripped off? Like, why not be wronged? Like, could we live our lives in a way that we don't really mind if we're being ripped off for the privilege of manifesting this, the lavish grace of Christ, right? That's what he's going after. Okay, now, flip over here. I want, to sh- I want you to see a couple things. Uh, DFP mentioned... This book has been used to justify slavery. See, Onesimus is a slave owner, so it's all good. You can go do that. That reading doesn't make any sense of what this letter is actually saying, right? That reading is 
very selective in, in, uh, in picking out, oh, Onesimus was a slave owner, or I'm sorry, Philemon was a slave owner, and so that everything's fine. Paul is undercutting the very roots of slavery here, okay? But with that, I want to I zoom out and give you a little bit of a survey of the New Testament's view on slavery because it is nuanced. This is by no means comprehensive. I just went through and I picked a handful of passages that I thought were emblematic of different facets of the New Testament view of slavery. So I'll, get, I'll read you a few of these, um, and then we'll try to like come up with a coherent picture in the next 10 minutes. So first thing, it treats the slave trade. This is important. It treats the slave trade as an evil thing. Just look at the company that slave trading keeps in 1 Timothy 1. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, for perverts, for slave traders, and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. All right, so can we agree that's, a, that's an unsavory list of things? right? The slave trade is treated as a wretched thing. It is incorporated with all these other things that are indisputably evil, okay? But the New Testament also recognizes that sometimes masters were kind. There's actually several people that are depicted in this way. So in Luke 7, there was a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly. He was sick and about to die, and the centurion heard Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him asking him to come and heal him. And to, I'm sorry, to come and heal his servant. So, of course, there are. There's going to be a range of people. Many people carry out their authority. You know this, right? There are good and kind bosses in a normal employment situation. Some of you work for them. Some of you are them. And there are terrible bosses that are abusive and unkind to their employees. Some of you work for them. Some of you might be them. Who knows, right? We want to be. There's a whole range of things. There are sometimes the situation is kind. But, of course, anybody who is a slave is in an unbelievably vulnerable position, right? And that vulnerability, people have been abused, you know, in a million times, right? Now, interestingly, the New Testament frequently uses slavery as a uh, metaphor for the Christian life. Paul, every letter Paul writes, he talks about himself as a servant, right? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So there's lots of places where there is language. This is all the same word in Greek, by the way. If you want to distinguish between servants and slaves, that's fine. But the New Testament is just indiscriminate in this language. So you could have a a good, you could have a good master. Jesus is a good master. And Paul's like, and we owe him absolute obedience. In fact, let's do this. In what sense... Are Christians slaves of Jesus? What what is being invoked by that imagery? I should, I've just given you the heart heart of it, but what else? What why can Paul call himself a servant? We've been bought with a price. We've been bought with a price. We are purchased human beings. Very good. I live with some of that old stuff that that was there before the Holy Spirit took over. Okay, so now that's not a slave of Jesus. That's a slave of sin. Right, okay, that's true, okay? So that's important. So we are sometimes described as slaves of Jesus, which is an exalted estate, and we are sometimes described as slaves of sin, which is also true and not so great. But, and so we can talk about both of those. Let's stay on Jesus for another minute. What does it mean that we're slaves of Christ? Judy? Your will is not your own. Yes. That's right. Your will is not your own, right? And this is, we are... In that, we are imitators of Jesus himself, who is also a servant. One of his 
titles from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 42 to 53, we've talked about this a few times, is that he is the servant and we are like him. Jesus says, I've not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And our will has also been subordinated to another. Yep, Tommy. You can't serve two masters. Excellent, right? So that's Paul's language. You can't serve two masters. Generally, it's God or money is the, is the pairing that's being set up there. But somebody has domination in your life. What other sense are we like slaves? Gil? Oh, oh, look at this. He says we should want to go above and beyond. And that's actually a great segue to the next passage we'll look at. So hold that thought for a moment, right? So all of this stuff is invoked in our slavery. Yep. I was going to say Paul says that That's right. Become all things to all men. It's, again, it's the idea that my will is not my own. My life is not my own. My pleasure is not the primary thing I seek. I seek his, my happiness is bound up in his happiness. And I'm going to do everything that he wants me to do. Now, this is infinitely easier. As, as difficult as it is, it's infinitely easier to be the slave of one who is crucified on your behalf. Right? We can't lose sight of the nature of this master whom we serve. Fred? All we have was provided Oh, okay, that's another thing, right? So if you're the slave, you're not, you're not going to go, you know, have some side gig where you're getting your housing and your food. You're just being provided by your master. Now, it's a little, it might be a little bit offensive to say, like, uh, it's being given to you because you're, you're earning it with constant labor, but it is being provided for you. That's right, and Jesus is our provider. All those things are all invoked, okay? So we got all, if we have all of that, he is, he is our master. There's also another sense in which we're slaves to sin, Romans 6 is the central page if you want to chase, chase that theme. But look, Gil, look at what it says in Ephesians 6. Listen, this is also one of those things, Dan, has probably been used against us, I would guess. In Ephesians 6, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And then in Titus, he says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make teaching about God our Savior attractive. Here's the thing. You could read his language here in Titus. You could read his language in Ephesians and think, okay, he is, Paul is affirming the goodness and the rightness of owning other human beings. And I would understand why you would think that, but you would be mistaken. That is not what he is saying. He's addressing, here's the fundamental reality. This is the situation in which we find ourselves. What are we to do? And just like Jesus says, if they slap you on one cheek, offer them the other Go the extra mile. Exactly what Catherine is describing. If they steal your silver, give them your candlesticks. That's what he's advocating for. He's advocating for a radical lowliness because the shape of the gospel is the letter V. The way up is down. It is Jesus. He's in heaven. He's exalted in all places. And he humbles himself, right? Do you have, do you have Philippians 2 in your brain? He humbles himself. What happens? How does that, how does that Philippians 2 thing play out? Empties himself. That's the great kenosis of Philippians 2. Humbles himself. What does he become? He's obedient, right? He lowers it, becomes a slave. He comes to the absolute lowest place. Humbles himself. He's obedient. He takes on the very nature of a slave. 
Then he's crucified. And because he seeks the lowest place, he's exalted to the highest place. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow. This is, the V shape is the gospel. And Paul is telling these slaves, you're here, crush it. Be the best here that you can be. Go to the lowest place because it is in being taken to the lowest place that we will be exalted to the highest place. And in that, there is no loss of dignity to do the things that people find undignified. This is who Jesus was himself. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He washed the feet of his disciples. Paul is embracing the absolute upside downness of Jesus' life that we take the lowest place. And if you have been called, even compulsorily placed in a low place, embrace it. Because the way up is down, and we will be wherever he has put us. Was there a hand over here? Did I miss something? Yep, Dan. Say, being a slave is external. Being a slave to Christ is internal. Yes, okay. Being a slave is external. They can actually compel your labor tell you where to sleep and what to eat and where to do. And being a slave to Christ is an internal feature. And Paul is telling both, embrace it all. And then look at what he says. This is, this is what Kelly was referring to earlier and is really the heart of the message in Philemon. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in, in, and is in all. That this slave who has no rights, who has no power, has no authority, is of equal dignity to his owner. That is what undercuts the whole system. He says this, he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. So you may be owned by a human being, but you are free to Jesus. And then similarly, he who was a free man when he's called is Christ's slave. He is creating this fundamental equality between slaves and non-slaves, between slaves and owners. And that is the seed that given time, is going to blow up the whole thing. And then, of course, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, were you a slave when you're called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. He's not blind to the fact that it's a drag to be a slave, that it can be incredibly vulnerable, incredibly injurious, incredibly unjust. And he's advocating, yeah, you can get free, right? But we want to do it right. And that's what he's helping Onesimus to do. By the end of this story, Onesimus will be free and not a fugitive, which is better. And he's doing it, he's appealing to it on the basis of these deep gospel principles. Make sense? How much time do I have? Not much. Okay, the last thing I included for you, if you want to read it, is N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright did, has written a commentary on Philemon, and he's written relatively extensively about this whole thing. And I want you to, you can read the whole thing. N.T. Wright, he's an Anglican theologian, and he basically says, like, why doesn't he just, why doesn't Paul go harder against this? Why isn't he more forceful in it? And he explains kind of some of the cultural context, and he concludes his argument. Well, you can see the bottom of that right, bottom of the left column. Why then did Paul not protest against the whole dehumanizing system? Here he offers some thoughts on that, and here's his conclusion, that last paragraph on the right. Paul's method is subtler. He, of course, knows 1 Corinthians 7, that it in, in principle it is better to be free than to be a slave. That's what I have alluded up, up just up top. And he says, but like Jesus, his way of changing the world is to plant a grain of mustard seed, which, inconspicuous at first, grows into a spreading tree. And in the meantime, he teaches slaves and masters to treat themselves and each other as human beings. Like the artist or poet, he does some of his finest work not by obscure clarity or direct statement, 
but by veiled illusion and teasing suggestion. And I would suggest to you guys, I mentioned this from that book I read, I recently finished Dominion, that the world is infused with Christian assumptions. You would not have ever ended slavery throughout the Roman Empire were it not for the spread of the gospel. This built into our consciousness the concept of the equal dignity of human beings. And so it is a slow work. And I am sometimes frustrated by God's slow work. The Hebrews were slaves in Egypt for how long? That must have felt like a long time, right? And God is patient, including with things that I am very impatient about, right? But this is the work that he's doing. And so if you read, if you go through Philemon, read it. Don't, this is an easy little avenue to ignore. But if you read through Philemon, man, there is so much stuff in here. I hope this might give you some of the keys to unpack it more. Uh, we will not be having class next week because it's Christmas Eve. And then the week after that is uh, New Year's Eve. So no class the next two weeks. Whatever the first Sunday in January is, we'll pick it up. And I think we'll probably be in Titus, probably. So you can read that ahead, and we'll look forward to talking together. See you soon.